Philippians 1, we'll once again read from verse 12 through verse 26. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake." Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. <coughs> Pardon me. I'll start back at verse 25 again. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we come to you, small creatures, limited and with um, so many um, inabilities. God, we come to you that we've just sung about a, a sea without a shore. God, you are limitless and you um, have no beginning or end. You do give to us from your fullness and all of our coming and opening our mouth to be filled. All of our crying out to you does not lessen your fullness by one drop. There's always fullness, always an adequate supply, never lack in your house, in, in you. Father, we ask you to again fill us, God. Give to us from that supply. God, we are poor and needy. And we are so 
at times so needy and so um, despairing as if you do not have an adequate supply or as if we're afraid to come and ask you. And God, at other times, even in our neediness, we are so proud and presumptuous and act as if we have need of nothing. And God, both of those are so wrong. We're grateful that not only is there such a great supply in you, but that there is such a willingness in you and that we never come to you and find that you hold us off at arm's length and say, no, not this time. Come back another day. You've had enough. But God, we find you to welcome us and even to command us to come near. And so, Father, we bow before you and we praise you tonight for being so very different than us and for bringing us to yourself and owning us not as just a part of a creation that's outside of you but God you are intimately acquainted with your creation but even more God you have brought us to yourself through Christ Jesus and you now own us as sons and daughters You give us the privilege of coming to you and calling you, Father. You give us your ear. Father, we praise you for such wonderful kindnesses, such benefits that are ours. God, we pray that we would be greedy in a sense, greedy in wanting everything that you've supplied, greedy in wanting uh, more of Christ Greedy in not being satisfied with a portion of what you've given when you mean for us to have more. God, let us not stop short. Let us not be so full of of other things that we have no appetite left for Christ. God, stir our appetites. Stir our once and let them all be filled up with him. We thank you, Father, again for what we've seen in Philippians 1 and how Paul was so well contented with Christ in a situation that um, was hard. God, we pray that our hearts would be encouraged, our faith would be strengthened by his example, and that we too would be content with our Lord Greedy for more of Him, yes, but content with Him and not feeling like we're lacking from other things, whether we have plenty or little, as long as we have Him. God, help us as we look again tonight. Open Your Word to us, Father, and speak to us. Father, I pray for John and Jane and ask that You would Strengthen them, help John as he recovers from his recent hospital stay and Jane as she mends from a broken ankle. God, we think again of John Montague as he continues to recover and we pray God for them and ask that you would help him physically. But God, we also pray that this would be a time of spiritual richness for him and for Pat. We pray for the Blasting Games, Father, as they 
adjust to life without Scott's mom. For Claire's recovery. God, there's so many others. We pray that you would give us all that we need. And God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to try to pick up verses 22 through 26 of Philippians 1. And we're picking this up after having spent a couple of weeks looking at verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in verses 22 through 26, he begins to fill that out a bit and explain this dilemma that he feels. And we don't really understand what he's talking about here, I don't think, unless we have a good understanding of verse 21, which is why we spent some time there. One of the reasons we spent some time there. Another was just because I thought it was so good. So, um, not what I said, but the verse. All right. Um, so, in verses 22 and following, he describes being hard-pressed between two different things and why and the outcome of that. So, just a few things tonight as we look at this and consider it. The first is this issue of being hard-pressed that he speaks of in verses 22 and 23. And after what he has just said in verse 21, you might find it kind of surprising that he would have any kind of hard decision to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's it's better. And so if that's so, Paul, then, you know, why are you hard pressed? Why is there a hard decision in front of you? But he insists this is the case. At the end of verse 22, he says, "I, I don't know which to choose. Verse 23, but I am hard-pressed from both directions. It's vivid language. Have you ever felt it? Pushed in from both directions and not sure which way to move? It's it's almost, if you were... We sometimes use the language of being stuck between a a rock and a hard place. You know? And, And you feel like you can't budge in either direction. MacArthur describes this as depicting a narrow road between two walls, two rock walls, and you have become trapped between the walls so you can't move in any direction. Another way to express it is that Paul faces a dilemma. Often when we speak of facing a dilemma, we speak of facing two negatives. They're both bad options. I, don't, I hope neither one of them comes true, you know, and you look for a way out. But Paul's not talking about two bad choices He uses the word positively. He's speaking about two really good choices. And I don't know which one's best. He speaks in terms of how for him personally, one is much more better. But there's still this other option that's really good also. It's kind of like being a kid and maybe you've had too much sugar for the day. And you have company over and there's multiple desserts. And mom says, you can only have one. <laughs> and so do you want the pie or the cake? And you look at it and you think, well, oh, I like them both. You know? And if you're an adult, what do you do? You, know, you, you sample all of it. But mama said only one. And so you're looking and thinking, which one? Oh, I can only have one. Paul looks at this situation and both of these are wonderful choices. They're so good. Which one do you pick? When he, in verse 21, spoke of dying being gain, remember, he didn't say that the other option was a terrible life. Imprisonment, suffering, 
hardships. And even though he was enduring all that, that's not what he said. What he said was to live is Christ. To die is gain. Those are his options. So it's not like life is great or or, or terrible and, and, and dying is better because life is so terrible. But really, two really good things. So not the the lesser of two evils, but which of these two blessings is the greater blessing? Which is the better option of these two wonderful things? What a choice. And the fact that he feels this, it really reminds me back to verses 9 through 11 when he prays for the Philippians that they would have a love that abounds in real knowledge and all discernment so that they can distinguish between the things that differ or so that they can, can, uh, you know, I have to read it. So that they may approve the things that are excellent. Here's Paul. Here's excellent choices. How do you distinguish between the two? How do you make a choice? It almost makes you wonder as he's praying for the Philippians. Does he also kind of whisper that prayer for himself? God, help me to distinguish. Well, in verses 23 and 24, as we consider, continue to consider this hard-pressed decision, there are a couple of other words I want to point out to you. And they're also very picturesque. And they help perhaps to frame this dilemma that he faces. The first one in verse 23 is the word depart. And he obviously uses this word as a description of dying. Because Paul speaks of departing to be with Christ. So he's speaking of the death of a believer. I'm going to be with Christ. One option is to depart and go be with him. And... Going to be with Jesus was a good thing. To die is gain. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So I'm going to be with him. But this word translated depart is is the word unloose. And it was often used of unloosing the, um, the ropes or I suppose they were ropes or chains from the mooring of a ship. So here's a ship moored or anchored, and it's time to leave the harbor. And so you either raise an anchor or you untie the moorings and you sell off to somewhere else, to another harbor. And that's kind of the picture here. Paul is ready to loose the moorings. He's ready to to, lift up the anchor and leave this harbor to go to another harbor, to another country. And not just to another country where there's uncertainties and unknowns and and I'm not really sure if it'll be better or not there, but to a much better country, to the good country where Jesus is. To depart is better because it's to go and to be with Christ. Another way the word was used was of pulling up stakes, tent stakes. So you pitched a tent, it's time to break camp, to strike camp, and you start pulling up the tent stakes to bring the tent down because it's time to move on. And Paul is kind of saying that, you know, to depart and to go to be with the Lord is to to pull up the tent stakes. It's, It's time to move on. And that idea kind of parallels what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, doesn't it? Where he talks about being in this tent and leaving this tent behind. To go to be with the Lord. To be absent from this body, this tent, is to be with the Lord. So he envisions one of these things perhaps, or some other way that this word is used. But those are kind of some ideas, some pictures that that word brings to mind. 
and going to be with the Lord, which he describes in verse 23, is very much better. Which is kind of a, a triple superlative. It's not just better, it's, it's more better. But not just more better, it's much more better. He, he stacks three different uh, descriptions there, comparative terms to describe how much better this is. So it's not that it's slightly better to go to be with the Lord. No, it's, it's a lot better. Not just a lot better. It is so much better. It's way far better to go to be with Jesus. And he, it's his desire to do that. I want to go do that. I want to be with the Lord. It's so much better. But then the second phrase, in the next verse, not just a word, but a phrase, to remain on in the flesh. In the flesh is to remain in this life as opposed to departing to live with Jesus or to have life with Jesus. And the idea expressed in remaining on the flesh, the picture these words could paint is, is that of clinging to life. Not clinging to this world, but, but clinging to life. So on one hand, you are, you know, you're pulling up stakes, ready to depart and go to be with the, the Lord. The other, I'm clinging to life. Which one do you do, Paul? And why? Is this such a hard decision? You, you just said that it's way more better to go to be with Jesus. It's what you want. To die is gain. So why is there a hard decision? And part of that answer is in verse 22. Where he says, But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which one to choose. This will mean fruitful labor for me. Dying... I go to be with the Lord. That's so much better. But if I stay, it means fruitful labor. A few things about that. And some of this I'm just going to kind of list for time's sake. But this labor was not labor for Paul's sake. He's not talking about working so he can accumulate more stuff or working even to accumulate more reward. Like I'm going to stand before the Lord and there's going to be rewards. And I want more reward before I go to be with him. So I'm putting that off if I can. To stay here a little bit longer. He doesn't mean that at all. It's not for Paul's sake. In fact, in verse 24, he says, Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He wants to labor for the sake of the Philippians and the church at large. And even more than that, it was to labor for Christ's sake. Again, you know, to live as Christ. Why does he care about the Philippians? He cares about the Philippians because of Christ. What Christ has done in Paul's heart. And what, Paul's, what, what Christ is doing in the Philippians. And so he serves the Philippians because he serves Christ. You remember that, uh, that verse in 2 Corinthians that Paul speaks about being the bond slave of the Corinthians for Christ's sake. That, that idea. He's going to stay, if he can, to serve the Philippians further for Christ's sake. He's God's man. He wants what God wants. Uh, second, this labor that he speaks of is spiritual labor. He's not talking about remaining in the flesh so he can make more tents, right? He's talking about spiritual labor. The, the fruitful labor that he speaks of is spiritual fruit. Third, this labor was an expected part of life in this flesh. Again, verse 22 
If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Paul the believer, if I live on in the flesh, what does that mean? It means fruitful labor. If the Lord leaves me here, it's because there's work to do. He has something for me to do. I want to be about it. Fourth, this labor would be fruitful labor. It's not just that there's work to do and it's unfulfilling and unrewarding and who knows if it'll matter. It will be fruitful labor. How does he know? He knows because he serves the Lord of the harvest. He knows because while whether he waters or, or spreads seed or whatever, God gives the increase, right? He knows because God has called him to be a minister of the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3. God makes us adequate. Does this mean that everybody Paul speaks to, even in Philippi, will become Christians or will profit spiritually? Well, no. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So not everyone, but yet some will. God will bring that about in some. But it doesn't even mean that all the fruit will be born during Paul's lifetime. That he will live to see it. Just because he's staying around and expects it to be fruitful labor doesn't mean that he gets to see all the results of his effort. How many of you have profited from what Paul wrote? And maybe even things that he writes after this. Fruit being born of his labor after he dies. And the reality that fruit often does come, you know, that we don't see, maybe we don't recognize, or it doesn't come like we want it to, or when we want it to, or how we expect it to. The fact that it does come ought to encourage our hearts. God uses labor, His labor, our labor done in His name, and fruit is born. Sometimes seeds planted take a long time to produce. How many seeds were planted in you and how long were they there before God quickened you and you came to Christ? Adoniram Judson was the first missionary sent from America. He went to Myanmar, then called Burma, and he suffered terrible torture there, uh, was imprisoned, life-threatening illnesses. He suffered a lot. After 14 years of labor in Burma, all he had to show it at that point, all he had to show for it were the graves of his wife and children. How easy it would be to quit. 
go home, say enough of this. But he didn't. In fact, he wrote, If I had not felt certain that every trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. But he was certain that it was ordered by infinite love and mercy. And so he cried out to God, praying that God would let him live long enough to complete the scriptures in the language of those people and that he would see a church begun. God didn't have to answer that prayer, but he did. And I was in Myanmar in 2015, and shortly before I was there, there was a a monument erected to the labors of Adoniram Judson. And I mentioned that really only to say there were still people there, Christians in Myanmar, who recognized the labor of Adoniram Judson among them, people that obviously he never met. Well, Paul is very confident about this. Again, verse 22, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor. Not just labor that might bear fruit, but it will mean fruitful labor. And it's this that he's weighing against going to be with the Lord, which he says he wants to do. It'd be much more better. It's this, obedience to Christ's desire over his desire. Fruitful labor that will benefit Christ's body. That makes him feel hard-pressed so that he's not sure which to choose. Now, one other thing from verse 22 And that is, how in the world is this Paul's decision? I don't know whether to keep on living or to die. I'm not sure which one I should choose. How is this Paul's decision? Has God somehow told him, I'm going to let you decide? Well, there's nothing really to indicate that. So what does he mean when he says this? I'm not sure which one to choose. I'm hard-pressed. If you ask the people of Rome in that day, most of the people in Rome, I imagine they would have said... It's Nero's choice. It's not yours. He's the one that's going to decide whether you live or die and how you're going to live if you live. Paul didn't know better than that. He understood that ultimately it was God's choice. But in what way does he mean, I'm not sure which way I should choose? Well, I believe he means this. Which do I pray for? Which do I plan for? Do I, you know, am I free to pray, God, take me? Am I free to plan along those lines? There are churches that, you know, if if I'm not going to be able to come see you, here's the kinds of things you need to know. But if I'm going to be able to come and see you, then maybe what he says is a bit different. And so his plans are different, depending on what the outcome might be. And you can imagine sitting there in a, a jail cell or in this house under house arrest and wondering what's going to happen next. And if it's this, then this probably needs to happen. But if it's that, then then maybe this should happen. And so Decisions have to be made. And he wants his prayers to align with what the Lord wants. He wants his wants to align with what the Lord wants. And so he wants to know. And so when he speaks of being convinced in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you. I believe he was saying that looking at the evidence that's before him, looking at what the Philippians needed, understanding that he has been set aside for this task, he believed he should pray and plan as though he would live and come to see them. 
I don't think he knows this absolutely, but he believes that this is likely based on what he understands. And because of that, you know, I'm, I'm convinced of this based on what I see, but ultimately it's God's decision. Because there's still that uncertainty. In verse 17 of chapter 2, again, he writes, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And in verse 23, Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm still waiting to see. So in that sense, Paul, I don't, I don't know which way to choose. I'm not sure which way I'm to pray. I'm not sure which decisions to make from this. How do you move forward here? It's a hard decision. Um, I remember when Elizabeth was in the hospital, um, Obviously, there were decisions that need to be made, and I wasn't sure often what decision to make. One, uh, in the first week or so, after, say after the first week, the first week is rounding off, uh, it's unclear, other than that things were serious, it was unclear what was happening moving forward. Malachi was in school. It's like, does he stay here? Does he need to go back to class? You know, if, if we're going to be here for a long time, maybe he should go back to class. Um, Nathan was still in school. There was just decisions that needed to be made um and i remember corralling a doctor and asking like you know you got to help me here because i need to, i need some information so i can know um and based on information you know you you can hopefully make a better decision so paul wants to know looking at the evidence i think it's this So living on in the flesh meant fruitful labor among the Philippians. His expectation was, in verse 25, that he would remain and continue with them. And there are three ends or three results or purposes that Paul has in mind as he is allowed to continue laboring among the Philippians. The first two are in verse 25. He speaks there of remaining and continuing with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Uh, a number of translations, including the New American Standard, speak of their, their progress or their joy in the faith. I have a footnote that says the in is literally of, and that may be a small thing. But I mention it because um, John Eady, who is a Greek, or not, he was a Scottish theologian and Greek scholar, speaks of both of these things as belonging to faith. So it's faith's progress... And faith's joy. So not things that are providing faith, but faith provides these two things, if that makes sense. They, faith possesses progress and joy. They're, they're built into faith. And so the idea seems to be this. John E. describes it kind of like this, and I'm paraphrasing a bit. It's not a direct quote, but he says along these lines that Progress and joy both belong to faith. That is, they are the possession of faith. As such, faith possesses a predisposition or susceptibility to growth and joy. Faith possesses a predisposition to growth and joy. Think of it kind of like this. Sometimes you see boys acting rowdy and people say, boys will be boys. And what are they saying? Boys have a predisposition to act you know, that way, girls maybe have a predisposition to act in a different way. So it's kind of their predisposition. 
John Eadie is arguing that in this verse, what he's saying is that faith has a predisposition to progress and joy. When faith is exercised, it progresses. It grows. When you see what God has said, you see His character, you hear His word, and you believe it, and you act on it, you cast yourself out upon it, faith is strengthened. It progresses. And you're encouraged to step a bit further next time and trust a bit further. And it progresses. There's a progression as you exercise faith. And so what Paul seems to be saying is this. I want fruitful labor among you. And the fruit would be kind of like this. If I'm able to come, I believe that God will use my presence and my teaching to strengthen your faith so that it progresses. There's an advancement in faith in you as God works through me. And surely they would have been encouraged by Paul's presence. Surely they would have been helped by his teaching. And so he's there. Their faith is stirred and there's progression. It's deeper. It's stronger than it was before. But not only a progression of faith, but also a joy of faith. That is, as faith progresses, it also has a deepening and stronger joy. It produces joy. So joy is not producing faith, but faith in a sense, producing joy. When you exercise faith, you're predisposed to joy in a way that you are not predisposed to if you are fearful or faithless. But you see what God says. You know who God is. You act upon that by faith, and you know joy, even if the world doesn't understand it. So faith exercised not only brings progress or strengthening, but faith exercised also brings joy. We've mentioned this verse, I think, in the last two weeks, but let me read it one more time. First Peter chapter 1.8. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, faith exercised, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You believe him whom you have not seen. You love him whom you've not seen. And you rejoice. So again, as Paul labored among the Philippians, his presence, his teaching would, not, would, would be an aid to their faith. So that there's not only a, a progress in their faith, a strengthening in their faith, but also a progress or a strengthening in their joy. They know joy experientially. There's a third end or purpose that Paul has in mind, and it is in verse 26. Verse 26 in the New American Standard is convoluted. It's one of those places where you wonder, kind of, what were you thinking? Now, I... I've looked at this and looked at this and looked at this. I think I understand what they were thinking, but still, you know, it's like you could have said this a little bit better. Um, so I love the New American Standard, but I don't particularly care for the way they handled this verse. Verse 26 says, So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. And the way it reads there, it sounds like they're supposed to, to brag about Paul. Your proud confidence in me. <laughs> Y'all so proud of me? You know, and that's not, I don't think that's what he means at all. So let me read 
the ESV and the New King James, and you can hear the difference. The English Standard says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So the cause to glory is glorying in Christ Jesus and you have ample supply as you look at me as as I teach you, as I'm here, and my coming to you provides an occasion for that. But the glorying is glorying in Christ Jesus, not in Paul or the New King James, that you're rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So rejoicing for me, not in me, not boasting in me, but boasting for me in the work of the Lord in him, it sounds like there. Um, proud confidence in me. I, just, I don't understand exactly. I think they could have said that better. So rather than proud confidence in me, you're glorying in Christ Jesus because of me, because of what God is doing in me. And because I was able to come to you when it didn't look like I was going to be able to come to you. That kind of idea. So, as we look at this verse and try to make some sense of it here, uh, let me first point out that the very first two words there, so that their reason for boasting or their reason for glorying is tied to the previous verse. Verse 25 I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me or your glorying in Christ Jesus so that, you, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. The reason for their boasting is not Paul, it's the work of God in them. And Paul... It's an instrument that God is using to bring that about. He's able to come to them and there's going to be fruit. There will be progress and there will be joy. Progress and joy of faith. And that will lead to something else. That will lead to boasting or exultation or glorying in Christ Jesus who is the actual one who's doing this. He's the one who is at work in them. Christ is the source of their faith. He's the object of their faith. And he's the ultimate cause of their progress and joy. Paul fits in as God's instrument. His presence, his teaching would be used to that end. And so he can say it's through my coming to you again that God would bring this about. His presence is the occasion. You can think perhaps of times when uh, Mr. Roberts has come or Andrew Davis or some of the other men who've come and they've preached and their coming was an occasion that God used to stir your faith. We wouldn't say, Mr. Mr. Davis did that. Mr. Roberts did that. We would never say that. But we may praise God for them and their coming because God used them to that end. That's what Paul's saying. God is going to use me for your spiritual benefit. And it will give occasion to you to praise God even more. And this praise to Jesus is the ultimate end, if you will. Yes, this will happen in the Philippians. And Paul wants to see that. But he wants to see that because it will lead to this. You will praise Christ. Remember, to live, to me, to live is Christ. 
death be gained to me very much more better. But if I can stay and labor among you and God uses that for your spiritual benefit so that you praise Christ Jesus, I think I'd choose that. That's what he wants. Christ glorified. And he sees remaining with them as an occasion for that to happen. If God lets me live on in the faith, your faith progresses. Your experience of joy grows and you boast in Christ Jesus. That's life. Well, just a couple of things for you to think about. I'm not going to spend much time on them, but just some things that you could think about in the few days to come. One is the selflessness of Paul. I mean, how easy it would be to say, what I want is to go and to be with the Lord. And that's so much better. I'm not even going to consider anything else. You know, I've, I've suffered enough. I've put in my time. I've done my work. I'm ready to go and to be with Jesus. But he doesn't. He looks at the situation and he prays, certainly, and he sees that God can still use him in this way, and he desires what he believes that God desires that he remains longer to help the Philippians. Even if remaining longer means more jail, even if it means more suffering, it's going to be a benefit to you, and that's going to result in praise to Christ Jesus. So I think what's going to happen is I will remain. And if I get to come and see you, you know, we'll do this. But selflessness. And you think about that, and then you think about where he's headed in chapter 2. Verse 3, when he turns to the Philippians who have some disgruntledness among them, and he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And they can't look at Paul and say, you talk a good game, but you don't live it, Paul. Uh, he's just got, he's just explained to them. It would be so much more better if I could go to be with the Lord. But for your sake, I think it's more expedient for your sake that I remain. And that would be good for you. And it will result in praise to Christ. I, I think that's what's going to happen. Another way to say that about you know, this selflessness and maybe a better way to say that is that Paul is so enthralled with the glory of Christ and so constrained or compelled by the love of Christ that he is willing to forego the glories of heaven, Christ himself and that relationship for a time because it's the pleasure of Christ Jesus that he do so for the benefit of of the Philippians. Lord, I believe what you want is for me to be here a bit longer and labor over there. So life for me means fruitful labor to live as Christ. That's better now because it's what you want. 
One other thing. If I've kind of followed this line correctly, and I believe I have, about the progress of faith and the joy of faith, and you know, Paul's coming, helping them to exercise their faith so that faith is strengthened and joy is experienced more deeply. If that kind of all really fits together like I think it does, then you could kind of do some self-diagnosis, couldn't you? What does my joy look like? And if it doesn't look like it ought to, you know, is faith being exercised? Or am I living fearfully? Am I being faithless in some way? Am I not really considering the promises of God? Am I not really living upon the character of God as He's just revealed Himself to me? Am I living upon all of that reality? Or am I stopping short? And one evidence of that is faith is weakened, joy is dimmed, think about that and you also think about what Nehemiah said Nehemiah 8.10 actually God says it I believe to Nehemiah the joy of the Lord is your strength the joy of the Lord is your strength 